Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Rachel Lander. She's a session cellist who has performed with everyone from the brilliant London Grammar to George Michael and even Elton John. She's now 16 years in recovery and is a trustee of Music Support UK, who I have a lot of respect for. And as part of our conversation, we discuss the charity's new family and friends service, which has been developed to help loved ones, including colleagues, of those struggling with problematic drinking. I really love this episode with Rachel. I hope you do too. So please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Good morning, Rachel. Welcome to One for the Road. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, It's a real joy to have you on. I've been reading up about you. I'm not stalking you. I've been reading all the wonderful things you've done in the music world. And it's it's amazing, honestly. And there's a couple of artists you've worked with that um, I want to talk to you about later. Um, but do you want to wind it back as we do and uh, tell us what it's like for you growing up um, and go from there? Thanks for having me on here, by the way. I grew up in a sort of middle class house with my parents who were musicians like classical musicians in orchestras and then they got divorced and married two other classical musicians in orchestras. So I was like surrounded musicians. Um, And uh, yeah, I started playing the cello when I was eight. And I think, I think it might've been my first addiction to be honest. Like I was really, really obsessed with it. And it was a real way of me getting validation from other people um, because, uh, you know, the harder I worked and the more I could play, the more praise I got from my family and at school. You know, I wasn't I wasn't strong in certain areas at school, like how terrible at maths, terrible at science, struggled um, in a lot of ways academically. But I sort of felt like I could win people round by playing the cello in assembly or something. And then, you know, it was like a currency um, of sort of being good enough in a way. But the other thing was, is that I just love music. I've always loved music. I've always loved listening to music. And I in a, and I do wonder sometimes, you know, I uh, get a certain feeling from listen to, listening to certain things. And as a child, I would listen to that thing on repeat, on a loop. And it's funny, I've recently been diagnosed with ADHD in the last year there or so. There you go, that would be that then. <laughs> there's no rocket science yes that was like rinsing all the dopamine out of one tune so I did that um for years and then when I was a little bit older I started like playing with other musicians like being in youth orchestras and I got this sense of like community and acceptance and it gave me so much 
being a musician as a young person. Um, and I just became obsessed with it really quickly. And I worked really hard. Um, and I had some goals in mind. I wanted to be in the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. And I did that when I was 14. And then I wanted to get a scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music to study. And I got that when I was 18. But, you know, as we'll talk about in the conversation, the wheels had started to come off my drinking by then. So, yeah, I've got a my relationship with music is really, it's kind of been alongside my addiction. At school, did people accept you as well for being a musician? Because I don't know what schools you went to, but if I was playing the cello at eight, I would probably get bullied. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I managed to escape that because I went to a very academic... I went to an independent girls' school and we had a bursary because I was a musician. I mean, I tried to, I mean, I carried my cello on the bus every single day. So I did feel like a, a total geek, but I made up for it with Doc Martens and massive amounts of eyeliner, which is what I still do to this day, uh, to try and sort of get some street cred back. Because <laughs> I did sit every day, sit next to my cello on the bus. And yeah. I'd go to school and I'd, I'd, I'd have already done about an hour's practice before I left the house. Then I'd get to school and I'd go into a big stall cupboard in the music department and do another hour. And they used to let me skip assembly. And then I'd do another hour during the day and bring my, and I I used to get really antsy if I hadn't done a wide amount of practice because so much practicing has to happen. If you're going to be a string player, it's just, it's insane. I can imagine it's, uh, and and you're, you're, I'm smiling because of your obsessive behavior. (laughs) Because a lot of us who have issues with the booze are like quite all or nothing, aren't we? So you hooked into that at an early age, which probably tied in with your ADHD diagnosis. And that was recent. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, de- definitely. But also it didn't feel that extreme because in the string playing world, that's what is required. Like most kids that I was in the National Youth Orchestra with were doing four hours, five hours practice a day, you know, like spending hours perfecting scales in major thirds. And, you know, it was like, it was, it's intense. It's a really intense way of living. Um, but yes, that definitely ticked a few ADHD addict boxes for sure. Yeah. Did you find you, you had a natural talent for it or was it the practice that uh, made you so good? Um, I think the practice at that point of my life was really important. And I still think that I fall back on the practice that I did then now, I think the thing that um, people picked up on is also to do with my alcoholism, which is like I feel everything all the time in a massive way. And I think if I've got one thing that I'm like proud of in my playing, which is hard even to say out loud, <laughs> to like is is that people feel things when I play stuff. Yeah, and yeah. I think and I think that's what you know. I think that's that's why I work now. That's why I've got a lot of work now. It's because like you you can sort of hear things in the sound, and also the cello is unique. I mean, if you look watch a film and someone falls in love or dies or has sex, there's quite often a cello solo in it <laughs> because it's the closest instrument to the human voice in like physical terms. So it really it's really evocative that sound. Um, and I think I had like a natural kind of affinity with that. I, I really get that. I worked for someone years ago and, and they were, they did the James Bond um, music and, you know, put up the production and how it's all put together. And it's so moving, isn't it? Like when you say, oh, I've got goosebumps listening to that. And, uh, you know, 
when I was in the peak of my addiction, I used to listen to Pink Floyd a lot. Um, and there was a certain track on Division Bell album that I had my headphones on. And I used to just lay there in a stupor, feeling sorry for myself. I repeat, repeat, repeat the same track. And now when I hear it, it's like I can really identify why I felt the way I did. You know, it it really touched me uh, in my soul. So I can really understand that. So when did you um, start your first drinking? Yeah, when was that? Well, the first time I had a drink, I was probably, I don't remember it particularly. It was like in my teenage years. And I definitely, what I hadn't mentioned is that alongside all this cello playing, I had terrible anxiety and panic attacks growing up, like terrible. And I didn't really know where it came from, to be honest. But I had my first panic attack when I was seven. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, it was really, really something. And I just felt like that. I hear a lot of alcoholics say this, like I was uncomfortable in my skin from Mm. when I was very small. And I was always looking for ways out of my body. Like my body was so uncomfortable. I think I somatized a lot of anxiety and sort of terror. I only know this because of the work I've done since I've been sober, but I felt extraordinary amounts of sort of terror, like existential terror as a kid. I don't really know why, but so I'd always had this kind of anxiety and self-consciousness and just this feeling of wanting to escape myself. And then when I had a drink, I remember the relief of like not being in my body anymore. Even after like one drink, it was like being delivered from something. And I, it wasn't like a conscious thought, but I remember that feeling of like, you know, that three drinks feeling of like being being inoculated against life and yourself and your thoughts. And I remember that, but I didn't like feeling out of control of myself. I didn't like the, the, the puking in the spinning room. So I was, I was never sort of, it's weird. Like I'm, you know, I'll tell you the rest of my sort of alcoholism journey, but I was never someone that drank to blackout. Really. I never, I didn't like being sick. So I stopped before I was sick. I was very careful about what I drank, but the alcohol from the very, very beginning for me was like a medical, it was like a medical thing. Like I was medicating myself and, you know, by the time I was at college, I had discovered at music college. So I was like 18 by then I discovered that if I drank straight vodka out of a water bottle, I never had to have a panic attack. That's what it felt like. Like I would get these feelings sort of roaring up my esophagus of sort of anxiety and, you know, knots in my stomach and my throat would close up. And then I would have like a bit of vodka, which is like, yeah, it just felt like medicine. Like I can Mm. still, you know, it's been a long time since I had a drink and I can remember the feeling now of just being like, like milk of magnesia kind of thing, you know, just washing it all down. And I, and when I discovered that, that was a thing that I could do. I was like, oh, I've got it. Like, this is how I'm going to be in the world. This is how I'm going to be an adult. This is how I'm going to cope with um, my panic attacks. This is how I'm going to get on a tube. It's how I'm going to attend a lecture. It's how I'm going to go on stage, you know. And obviously, a lot of people take a long time to get to the straight vodka out of a water bottle stage of their drinking. You know, it takes a long time. to. But I started there. So I didn't have very far to fall, you know. So by the time I was 23, I was wholly dependent on that vodka. I'd stopped playing the cello because 
it was too frightening and I was out of control of myself. And I felt like I did what a lot of alcoholics do, which is I blamed my environment, you know, the people in my life, the job I was doing, anything outside myself really that made me drink like that rather than the other way around, if that makes any sense. You know, I didn't think, oh, the drinking's the problem. I thought the drinking is the solution and I must keep going with the solution at all costs. And everyone that's telling me not to does not understand how I feel. They do not understand how bad it is in here, in my, you know, my body and my head. It's, it's too awful. And then of course I was, you know, that dependency led to DTs in the morning, round the clock drinking, um, my tolerance was all over the place. So sometimes I could drink a bottle of vodka and feel nothing. And then other times I could like have a glass of wine with dinner and be, be like absolutely pass out. Like I was, I looked very different. I was like, you know, big bloated moon face and I was a lot heavier than I, than I am now. And I couldn't eat. I had constant gastro symptoms. And I genuinely thought that I could like, and if someone had said to me at that time, which people did, you must stop drinking. It was like they'd asked me to like scale Mount Everest. Like, yeah, I, I couldn't have done it. So I felt very sorry for myself being 23. And, and I, you know, I, I, I am someone that went to abstinence based 12 step recovery and just saying, I'm Rachel, I'm an alcoholic. I felt like, I was like, how did this happen? You know, how on earth did this happen? I'm like 23. I, I went to the Royal Academy of Music. And then I went to the Royal Northern College of Music. I had all this promise in my career. And I was in church basements, like unable to stop drinking. I could not stop drinking. And a bit of me didn't want to stop drinking because I couldn't cope with how I felt when I was sober for a long time. It's funny, I haven't talked about it for a while. And when you when I remember it, it's like, God, it happened. It's like it happened to somebody else, but it was really it was so dark, honestly. It's really, really powerful. Yeah. Um and that brings that makes me remember my addiction because I was vodka in the end, but you started in the beginning because you yeah. found the magic tablet, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Like you stumbled across it and thought, actually, your anxiety feels really, really unmanageable. And for you to find the solution, no wonder you got addicted to it, you know, yeah. especially with your performing, you know, the pre-show nerves, the building up. But as we know, alcohol escalates, so you start to rely on it more, our tolerance goes up. And then DTs in the morning, let's have a quickie, just calm the nerves down. Did it affect your performances, like, in a big way? Well, I'd have said no at the time. I felt like I couldn't perform without it. And I remember doing like an access scheme when I was at college where you audition as a student and you get to play with a professional orchestra. And I remember being in the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester playing Shostakovich Seventh Symphony with this amazing symphony orchestra and having a bottle of water, water, you know, in inverted commas, by my feet. And I was like, well, thank God I've got that. Otherwise I'd have walked off the stage with fear. You know, wow. that's going to be, that's... So it's debilitating anxiety. Oh my God, 100%. I mean, yeah, yeah. If I, if I, um, I mean, I st- and it's not like that fear and that adrenaline, it's not like that's gone now. It's just that I didn't, I was so frightened of it, I think, that I just, I had to, I had to medicate it. And also there's something about, like, if you're in a symphony orchestra full of people who are in their finery, 
And they're incredibly, everyone's very talented. Everyone's done a lot of work to get there. The lights are on. It's a silent stage. It's silent in the auditorium. You've got loads of difficult notes in front of you. There's something uniquely fucking terrifying about that. Even now, you know, and that's what I do for a living. Like I, you know, there are still nights where I think, oh my God, I'd I'd rather be doing anything. Really? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. If I'm honest about it, I mean, some days, I mean, some, and then some days I feel, I just feel nothing but joy and gratitude that I'm there and I'm sober. But the actual chemical process that happens with adrenaline and cortisol Mm. And the kind of sensitivity as a woman with addiction and ADHD, sometimes I just think, God, I'm not able. I'm not able for this. Sometimes. Yeah. I, I get that. Um, it, it's when we stop drinking, we have to learn to manage the symptoms, don't we? Yeah. Like the the anxiety. And, you know, even if you have a really bad day or some bad news, your default brain can go to, I know what a fix is. Do you know what I mean? Like w- within seconds, like I, I used to get in and pour a large glass of vodka and I used to say, look at it and go, I love you. <laughs> and then I used to say, see you later reality. Like I had this, this whole thing, like this, these catchphrases that I would say, and I would neck it. And it was like a burning warm feeling going down my gullet. And I, and I felt instantly better. So no wonder so yeah. many people struggle so much to say, do you know what? Remove that now because it's really no good for you and manage your feelings after that. It's really hard, isn't it? It's really hard. And I think that's that that thing is why a lot of people can't stay sober because it's like, it's, I mean, it, it had to basically kill me nearly for me to admit for me to get through that denial that it was a problem because I was so full of this story that it wasn't like it was my circumstances, you know, or I kept thinking I've got an anxiety disorder. What I will do is I will get medication for that anxiety disorder and then I will be able to drink like a lady. I just did not, I didn't connect to the the dots. And I hear that so much in meetings of like not being able to understand our own behavior. And then, and then someone saying, I mean, what happened to me is that a therapist said to me, Oh, I know what's wrong with you. (laughs) Once I told her how I drank, she said, Oh, you're an alcoholic. And it's good news. Good news is that I know that there are people that, that get better, you know, and it'll be fine. She was really sort of like, Oh, this is great. We know what's wrong with you. And that helped me that I thought, Oh, okay, maybe that is what's wrong with me. But it was not that first bit. It was hell, mm. like putting down that medicine and just being in the world. It was like the edges were too sharp. The lights were too bright. I was looking at, a, this is a real problem of mine, this um, compare and despair thing, like looking at the outsides of other people and thinking like, how are they just on the tube? Like people in the rush hour with a coffee, yeah. dressed for work, getting on the tube. I'd be like, how are you doing that? How? I can't even like, I can't, I was, you know, crippling panic attacks, like terrible kind of IBS, like stressy kind of stomach, all of that. And no substance. It was agony. And I don't, you know, and actually I'm grateful for it now because I think, I don't know if I could do that again. I don't know if I could do it again. So I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm so grateful that I, I knew that I couldn't drink. 
Like it was, it just became painfully obvious. And, and you know what? That's half the battle, right, Rachel? Because when you dabble with the devil and you're going, you know, like I see how it goes for a few months and then I might be able to moderate. Well, we know where that goes, right? And, and you know, there's that saying that I've often said, you can turn a cucumber into a pickle, but you can't turn it back. And and that's how I look at my relationship with it, right? And I, I know that I just can never drink ever again. And I've worked with so many people now and talked to so many people that they felt after three, four months, oh, I think I'm all right now. I'm not as bad as what I thought. They get fading bias effect. They forget how bad it was. And they then one night they go, do you know what? I had a glass of wine and I stopped at two. I think I've cracked it. And within a month, they're back to the one or two bottles a night. And, you know, it's got you around the throat again. So I agree with you. It's coming out of that denial stage of thinking I'm allergic to alcohol. I cannot have it in my life. And when I made that a non-negotiable, yes. kind of made it simpler for me to accept there's something really maddening about the negotiation I spent a long time I I had a relapse after seven months and that entire seven months I'd be sitting in meetings and my head would just be so busy and it'd be listening to other people and being like I never did that I never did that I I'm not like you like I was trying I was in the negotiation stages yeah And and then it took a relapse where I drank a bottle of vodka I just thought where I was like, oh, I am actually powerless over this. Like I have got no control and I haven't had to have a drink since then. And actually the the date that that happened, I've got it tattooed on my forearm here. It's like, it's, it's so precious to me that that that's the day that I kind of got real, (laughs) you know, you dumped the toxic X and you saw him for what it was. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. You know, I try and humanise my relationship with alcohol and it helps me. It does because I, you know, it was a narcissist. It used to charm me, woo me over when I was lonely, bored, hungry, upset. Or if I'd had a really good day, it used to take me on the shoulder to celebrate. Yay. All that stuff, you know. And now it's still around, pops up every now and again. But, it, you know, it hasn't got the same effect. It's like seeing a an ex from years ago and you think, I don't know why I was with him in the first place. Do you know what I mean? It's it's worn off. But um, when, when you stopped drinking then and you started playing, yeah. How was that experience? Like, you know, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't for the first year I was a temp. I was a, my first year of recovery from, from the date of this tattoo, which is the 23rd of October, 2007. I, um, I was a temp in, the parking permit department of Wandsworth Borough Council. Oh, wow. I know it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I bet you do. I bet you've had to deal with them. Um, Yeah. And even getting there on the bus in the morning, I'd have to ring my sponsor and be like, can't stay on the bus. I mean, it was like that, like minute to minute. And that's why it's interesting what you were saying about, um, you know, it's a non-negotiable. I can never drink again there's a weird thing of like knowing that you can never drink again, but then I had to do the thing of the 12 step thing of it's just for today. I only have to bear this for today because if I looked at the kind of vista, it was like a tundra. Yeah. I just, it was too big. So my sponsor would be like, just get to work, just get, just get in, just walk into the office, get yourself a cup of tea, sit at your desk. Like that was literally incremental kind of, 
And I did that for long enough that I stopped having to think about it. Um, And then whilst I was temping, a really close friend of mine who I've known since I was eight, and she was actually the person that she was instrumental in me stopping drinking. She rang my parents and told them what was going on. Um, and the next thing I knew, my dad was coming to pick me up, you know, and getting me to a therapist. And then I, that, so she was instrumental in my recovery, but she's a violinist. And, uh, she said, there's this called, this girl wants to form a quartet. She's a composer. She wants to arrange her own music, um, and not play like classical music. What do you think? And it was just kind of a really nice way of getting back into Mm. performing again. And we wrote all our own arrangements. We wore what we wanted. Uh, we were very lucky in that um, we got a kind of management deal with uh, with a with a bloke that manages like lots of kind of classical crossover singers. So, bef- bef- like within a year, we were playing at the London Palladium, our own arrangements, our own, you know, and and it was, and I was with these four girls who kind of had my back, you know, and um, actually I was with three girls. I was one of the four girls, and it was really hard and I'm really grateful to them because they had to put up with me and my neurosis, you know, cause I was really fucking uncomfortable. I was really uncomfortable. Um, so we toured and like, you know, I had, and I had so many firsts with that quartet, you know, like the first time I got on a plane sober, uh, which was awful. Um, but then it was all right, you know, and then it was all right. Uh, the first time, like I went to all different countries, went to Japan and Mexico and, I went to meetings in all those places and, you know, I stayed sober and it was hard because they drank, not alcoholically, but there was drink. And at first that was very hard. I think it was like, the thing is I knew that their drinking and my drinking were like completely unrelated. You know, they wanted to have a glass of wine after a concert and unwind a bit. And like, that is nothing to do with how I drank, like nothing, you know, like that it would I'd have had to drink to go on the stage to get on the train to go to the gig you know so it wasn't that it was just I I envied them their ability to kind of like let their hair down afterwards um and I was just like wound up with all the adrenaline on a tour bus or on a and I fat and that was quite hard that was quite lonely sometimes um but they were incredibly supportive and they were really encouraging. And we did some massive things. Like we were played live on radio too. We, we, uh, we did, we, we played our soloist with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. We traveled the world. Like we had an amazing time. And then um, that ended and I'd started doing kind of session playing by then. Like I, a lot of kind of studio work. Um, and I just got more and more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm. what I wish I could say is that you know I had an epiphany and I thought I don't have to be frightened anymore and everything it's it's not been like that it's like my recovery has been slow and it's been about sitting with discomfort and and actually being able to get to a point where I can trust myself to not medicate it and the first obviously the first bit of that was terrible like you know but then so many things have happened you know I've had like I've basically I've spent I feel like my whole adult life's been in recovery I'm like so I came in when I was 23 now I'm nearly 40 
And I've got married and divorced in that time. I've had two children. Being pregnant, that was for someone who like is panicking about their body. That was quite hard. Giving birth, you know, there were I've had all these like major milestones in my life and I haven't had to pick up a drink. So now it doesn't occur to me to pick up a drink ever. Like it literally, and I can be around it. It, it doesn't have any effect on me. Um, I, but the thing that the thing that I envy in people drinking is the ability to change their chemistry. That's that's the thing. Because you know, some days, some days I'm really nervous at work, or I'm stressed about my kids, or I'm exhausted, and I feel like I'd love to change how I feel. That's why people drink, alcoholics drink, because they mm. want to change how they feel. And it works. We're clever. I've never met a, have you ever met an alcoholic that wasn't really intelligent? Like I've, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, but there are not many. We, we, we are very adaptable. We, yeah, we, we're resilient. Exactly. You yeah, know? we're capable alcoholics. Like, and I see sober alcoholics do incredible things, like and helping other people, and a kind of, you know, what, I, what I love, what I've picked up on is that you growing up, you were always looking for external validation. Yeah, right? and when we when we stop, we start to get to know ourselves. But when we're drinking, we don't really know who we are, do we? And for me, when I was 14, when I started drinking, I gave up at 54, right? Yeah, it's like, amazing. yeah, 40 years. But I had 10 years of drinking a litre of vodka a night. So I have no idea how I'm here. And I've interviewed people since and seen documentaries of people who have died in their early 40s who drank less than me. So I'm so lucky to be here now. But it's it's we almost have to grow up. We have to accept our responsibilities and we have to learn about ourselves, how we are. So you suffer with debilitating anxiety. So it's about you learning how to manage that on a physical and psychological level as well. Yes. And that takes a lot of time. And But there are days, as you say, that you wake up and you think, I feel really, really anxious and that could be a physical thing and you could go for a walk you could take vitamin d spray b12 you can do all the right things and you still feel bloody anxious right and and sometimes you just have to get through the day and go do you know what i'm going to bed at seven o'clock and, and that's the end of it and start again absolutely and i do I, but the other thing that in on those days and there are those days is that I do have like, I've got like sober comrades, you know, that I call and I can say to them, oh my God, mm. I feel this, I'm thinking this. And no one ever goes, what? You know, they, yeah. they all say, yeah, yeah, I know. And they'll give me an example of when they've done that or they'll, they just remind me who I am and what I'm capable of. And I have to have myself reflected back with someone, by someone else. And I think, you know, Obviously, I'm in 12-step recovery, so there is the sponsorship. And sometimes on those days, I sponsor people and they call me and they they need my perspective. And that kind of gets me out of myself because so much of what I've what I'm 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 fascinated by anything sort of like neurosciencey. I can't believe how what I can create with my own mind in my body basically like so much of what I thought was a were like bodily complaints were sort of psychosomatic that, that I'd, I'd processed trauma in my gut for instance yeah and understanding how I'd done that why I'd done that 
meant that I could relax about it, which meant that my gut problems improved. You know, but that but we're talking like that's a long time in recovery, even to uncover why it was there in the first place. And I think most first sponsor used to say that alcoholism is a disease of impatience. And I really, really relate to that. It's like, I can't bear this. I'm going to change it right now. Yeah. I'm going to change it and have a drink right now because I can't see this feeling through to the end and see what it's going to evolve into, see where I'm going to be at the other end of it. I have to interrupt that cycle and control it myself. So it's like this kind of the the, the controlling nature you know, and it's funny because like people would look at an alcoholic drunk and think, oh, they don't care. Like, or they're, you know, they're really laid back. But it's like the opposite is true. It's like, no, I, I you know, I'm like absolutely full of self-centered fear and um, and I need to medicate it right this second. So, so much of my recovery has just been about knowing that I don't, that I can, that I can withstand difficult feelings. I can. Yeah. Like. you've you've adapted over time and it takes time and i really get what you say about the impatient right because being all or nothing yeah being overthinkers is like i want i want this done now and that's why i think a lot of people when they stop drinking they join a gym and they run marathons and that but it always bites you on the arse after right because we've gone too fast Yes. Um, and, and it's like, okay, what about the emotional side and, and the, like the scars it's left, the shame, the regret from the past. And it all catches up with you. And I always say, let's just take that, you know, the day at the time thing, whether you're in 12 steps or not, is yes. such a, a brilliant way to do it because it's like, I do it either way, wake up in the morning and say, right, absolutely non-negotiable. I'm not drinking today non-negotiable so it plants that seed in your head or you can say when my head next touches that pillow uh, in my bed well not all the time because you might have a kip but it's i will be sober and that's what you've got to aim for you know and and it works because so many people i can't see me last in the weekend i can't baby steps from the beginning yeah i remember saying on my first meeting to this woman i was like if i get married I'll have, um, I won't be able to have champagne at my wedding. Yeah. You know, she was like, but you've had a bottle of vodka in your handbag. Like, have you got, a, are you engaged? I was like, no. <laughs> I haven't even met him yet. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> is mad. It's interesting as well, what you were saying there about um, the thing about, right, I'm going to stop drinking and then I'm going to run a marathon and kind of do the whole, the full gamut. And I think so much of like being sober and and like just accepting life on life's terms, you know, it's like sometimes life's boring. Like there's yeah. mundane shit to do. Like I'm a mother of two. There's a lot of my life is not playing with rock stars in studios or on stage. It's like folding laundry for my six-year-old or wiping bottoms or knit combing or, you know, like the stuff of life, like the mundane stuff, yeah. you know, the school run, like being in Sainsbury's thinking about what everyone needs to eat the next day, like that kind of stuff, that minutiae, was completely beyond me when I was drinking. I just could, it was like, that's, t- that's so boring. I can't even think about it. So I'll just starve. So I will just, I'll just be nothing in my fridge. Like I didn't understand about like, you know, self care and, and kind of showing up for yourself. And now I've got to show up for two children and the, the, the days are long and lots, lots has to happen even before they go to school or before I go to work. And, um, 
I think sitting with the kind of the mundane stuff and the boring stuff of life, like that's, you get promised like a full life with all the feelings, not just mm. the kind of extreme good ones. It's like there's stuff that's in the middle, the kind of meh days. Yeah, I, I really relate to that. And, and, you know, the ups and downs of life, relationships, separations, you know, change of job, moving the house, all those really big stressful situations and we, I think it's you adapt over time. You get used to it. Yes. Um, and I think that's why making it a non-negotiable saves a lot of time, actually, because yeah. you can just say, right, it's done now, and that's the end of it, um, and have closure over it. You don't think, like, once you've, like, kept that boundary for yourself, it's like you got, you can trust yourself yeah. more and more as time goes on. Like, the more days that you do of, like, I'm not going to drink today, and then you've done a month, it means that you're you are because I don't know about you, but when I was drinking, I couldn't show up where I said I was going to show up. I was unreliable, largely. Like I couldn't, um, my behaviour didn't match my words. I think you're unreliable to yourself as well. Well, that's what yeah, that's what I mean. You like, know, like you you you're not you're not um, living up to your core values where you think you're this person, and then all of a sudden you you don't act like that, and and that's where there's shame. It's like who am I? Who have I become? And that's how I felt. You just look in the mirror and, and compare. Like there was a lot of comparison you were saying about um, when you were younger. And I also say like try not to compare to other people when they're sober because it's a completely bespoke relationship to every single individual who struggled with alcohol, right? Because you could drink one bottle of wine a night. Well, all right, let's use vodka. Right, <laughs> let's be real. You could drink a bottle of vodka a night. I drink a bottle of vodka a night. But we've had different backgrounds, different upbringings with different people, so it's bespoke to yourself. So when we both, oh, we're both going to give up at the same time on the same day, we're going to react differently. So it's how we deal with our life, managing our life without that medication. But I, I agree with you. It's being patient. Education is huge. Like like you say about neuroscience, I'm fascinated by that. I love about the neurotransmitters and how our brain works and the repair process. And our bodies are incredible as well, you know, how we can repair a positive mindset. Don't be a victim where we're like, oh, why can't I be like everyone else? We're not, and we never will be, and that's the end of it. I know that sounds harsh, but when you actually – Frame it like that is the truth. So you don't start going, maybe I can have one. Because deep down, we know we can't. And and that's how I look at it, you know? I think the comparison thing, um, that, that, was a, that was a real, you know, being in the classical music industry and I'm surrounded by people kind of high achieving, you know, people that are, incredible musicians and I used to say to my sponsor at you know when I was temping and trying to show up to work without having a panic attack and I'd look at the other other musicians and I'd say to her like I'm not like them she said well it's pointless you even looking at those people like the only comparison you should be making is the person that came through the doors of recovery that's that's the person that you should be comparing mm. to you were somebody who couldn't get in the shower without having a drink of vodka and who was not living in reality. And now you're someone that's trying. So absolutely irrelevant what those other people are doing. Irrelevant to you. Like you, you are not in the same parameters as them because 
you drink vodka like all day if left unchecked. So that was a really good reality check for me as well. So I can still fall into that trap now of comparison. And I think, you know, Instagram and things like that, like it just breeds that, you know, my body should look like this. I should have this, all of that stuff. And it can be such a trap that I'm actually really grateful that I've got that my parameters are like, well, I'm somebody that was, you know, nearly dead from alcoholism. And now I'm a working, you know, mother of two sober. So that so my my comparison is has to be a bit different. Absolutely. And and what is uh alcoholism like in your industry? Um because you mentioned earlier how like these difficult keys, you look at rock bands and you know I I uh, interviewed uh, Jim Sonfeld from uh, Hootie and the Blowfish and and it kind of enhanced their music and it was accepted that it's rock and roll and <laughs> throwing tellies out the window and that and like is it rife in your in your industry? I'll say it is, Dave. Yes, it is. It is. But well, then I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? I think it's rife everywhere. Petty, you know. You know. But it's interesting because um, you know the, how we've been connected is through the charity that I that I'm a mm. trustee of, which is Music Support, right? Mm. And that was set up by people in the music industry for people in the music and live events industry. And I'm the only one on that board of trustees at the moment that's from the classical world the other the other chaps are from the rock and roll world where it does seem like to me it's way more acceptable to have to admit to emotional frailty or to um or to get sober and stay sober and be clean and it's like and it's it's a kind of a thing a lot of people are sober and clean in that industry now in my industry people do not talk about this very much um and i think like anything i mean yeah it is rife it is rife there's there's a culture of beta blockers that's a big thing which you know i can be on the fence about because i guess they're not mind altering as such but people re- rely heavily on those drugs to get them through performance anxiety which you know if for instance if you're a string player and you're awash with adrenaline you can get what's called the bow shakes and the sweat and it can stop you from delivering the performance of the music that you've worked so hard on you can get nervous and mess it up. So like to bypass that chemistry, you can take a beta blocker and you still have all the nerves and the fear in your mind, but your body just goes, "Ah, everything's fine. See, that's what they, so it blocks adrenaline. That's how, but it also means that you feel kind of dead. I can't take those even though they're not like addictive because I have been addicted to them. So when I got sober, I had to put those down. But the culture of like taking beta blockers and not telling people that you're taking beta blockers is massive. And there's the drinking. I mean, I I work in the West End primarily and on recording sessions. And yeah, there is, it's, it's much, it's very different now than it was even maybe like five years ago. It's much sort of uh, less boozy, I'd say, but it's like anything else, isn't it? It's like people want to get through a difficult situation. (laughs) So they medicate themselves through it. What I wish in my industry is that we all know that we're frightened because it's a frightening thing. I've mentioned, you know, that feeling of being on the stage, sweating, you know, with, with a frock on and in, in a silent auditorium playing very, very difficult music. There are some people that aren't frightened of that and just like see it as a joyful yeah. expression and they just want to be part of something. And I and I also experience that in recovery often. but. It's like, it's still, I feel very much like it's still a taboo 
subject. And it's funny, I did a podcast recently, uh, like a musician's podcast, and they said, you know, we Googled orchestral musicians and uh, performance anxiety, and you're the only result that comes up that's that's talking about it. So, I mean, things are definitely changing. Like I've started going into um, conservatoires and talking to the students like in Freshers' Week you know oh, and that's speak. really brilliant yeah so that so the culture's definitely changing yeah. educationally but i still feel a bit of an outlier talking about it to be honest and i'm sure and i don't know i just i just wish that we could all it was it was more acceptable to say i'm really scared <laughs> yeah that's powerful actually that's that's really powerful because we're afraid of judgment aren't we yeah. You know, I spoke to someone the other day whose husband didn't want to go into a hospital because he didn't want to be judged by the nurses and doctors because of his alcoholism. And it broke my heart. And, you know, he ended up, he didn't make it. I'm sorry. End, you know, and they're the kind of stories like, God, why is there still stigma wrapped yeah. around this terrible illness? You know, why? If it's if we say to people, you know, I, I'm um, giving up sugar or I'm not having caffeine or I'm trying to stop smoking, it's like, fantastic. Mm. I'm trying not to drink. Oh, don't be boring. Oh, God, I know. Yeah, and, oh, there's nothing wrong with your drinking. You're okay. Have a drink. All this business. like, And what about, well, what about my mental health? What about my anxiety? You know, like my everyday life of trying to manage what about that? Does that not mean anything to you like it, it's such I think it shows up other people I remember it's so funny when I tell people I'm sober the people that are like desperate to tell me about their own drinking and how okay it is you know there's people like oh well you know I don't drink like that and immediately and yeah. I think oh, okay something's going on there for that yeah. person yeah so we I think sober people kind of can be mirrors absolutely and it makes people uncomfortable there's that but then again I do I'm sometimes like I have the honor and the privilege of being the person that people ring when they're ready to stop you know and that that has happened a few times you know people that I've worked for people that I would never have thought you know that are like bossing it career-wise and and incredible musicians and then I've had a phone call saying like oh my god like my drinking is out of control I need some help you know and if I didn't talk about it and I wasn't open about it then they wouldn't know that I was there that I've been through it so I think that's that's the reason we like we can't smash any stigmas if you're not talking about it but then it costs something doesn't it to be vulnerable open and to be open um, and sometimes I worry about my parents, like my, you know, cause I think it must be quite hard for them that, that I think they wonder if it was their fault, you know, cause there wasn't alcoholism in my family. Um, and that, you know, the people that got me sober was like a room full of strangers. It wasn't people that loved me at the time, mm-hmm. which is that that's another kind of st- strange paradox about getting sober and, in the 12 step, 12 step recovery is that, you know, you you go into a room full of strangers and it's like there you can be honest, you know, or that's, that was my experience. Anyway, I know that's not everybody's experience, but I felt very like, Oh, I can stop pretending in here. I can say, like, I heard people talk about fear and I've been afraid my whole life and I couldn't understand why people weren't saying, Oh my God, I'm so frightened. I'm so frightened. This is so frightening. I could, and I still don't understand that. Like I find small talk really hard 
you know, what I love about sitting next to someone in a meeting is you'll say, how are you? And they'll go, fucking, I've had a shit. Terrible. I'm I'm scared. I've had a row with my partner. I I hated my boss today. And it's like, then I feel like they're lighter. I feel less alone in my struggle because it is a struggle being a human, you know, living a life. It's hard. And the the community of sober people is really important as well whether you do it through meetings or whatever just absolutely connection is key um and there's like can i always say it's like an unspoken code when when you know that someone's been in the same boat it's like the mason's handshake do you know what i mean it's like (laughs) oh yeah uh i relate and like like, you know you could say to me about drinking uh vodka out of a bottle of uh like water on yeah yeah (laughs) you know decanting like Aldi or other supermarket I shouldn't say a supermarket name should I but like you know terrible sort of paint stripper vodka yeah like bright own brand like own seven brand. quid a bottle vodka yeah. yeah which I knew was going to make me ill yeah but that was still preferable to like oh yeah think- you don't think of the after you think about the here yeah. and now and I, I need to take this yeah this instant yeah. fix um but it's interesting what you say about your mum and dad because I often work with partners of um, alcoholics and they come to me and they literally don't know what to do uh, yeah. and they can get dragged down as yeah. well um, to the depths, right? And Music Support, who are a fantastic charity, and I've had Andy Franks on my podcast, yeah. who is amazing, Franksy, and he's a tour manager who's worked with, with literally everyone, isn't he? Nice. Um, and they've just launched a family and friends service, haven't they? Um, I think was last last week, which I think is really really important. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, we've we've um, had we've got a partnership with um, a new foundation called the Christopher Meredith Foundation, and he was a well loved agent and festival uh, booker. His foundation do a lot of amazing work in the music industry, and it's enabled music support because we often have had calls on our helpline, which we run from the from sort of desperate families and friends of alcoholics and i think when an alcoholic is in the mire of the addiction we become incredibly like myopic and selfish and we behave badly and but i think the people that love us can see the person underneath and want that person back and don't know what to do so it's really important that they have some support as well just to kind of know what to say what to do what not to do um so we're so we're really passionate about that because that's a we're contacted a lot by you know tour managers of artists for instance you know of people that are struggling yeah um, so that's so that's what that we're going to have a new a dedicated helpline for friends and family um and then we can um, direct those people to wherever the help is signpost them which is really important yeah. because um knowing the right avenue is so important isn't it because yeah. you know uh, they're at a loss that you know as you say so articulate what you said there about they want their person back whether yeah. it's uh, a loved one sibling colleague they want their that person back because as the alcoholics said we get lost in the mire don't we and we we just can't see wood out the trees, you know, through the trees. So it's so important for people to have support outside of friends that's giving the wrong advice, you know, yeah. I'll just boot him out or, 
you know, it's... Hide the booze, that's another one. Oh, yeah, don't, uh, pour the booze down the sink. Um, yeah, but also there's there's something about that person gets then enmeshed with the illness, which isn't mm-hmm. their illness. So and then codependency becomes a problem. So it's it's really it's really far reaching and it's a family illness, but yeah. it's also family recovery. Like amazing things happen, you know, the ripple effect of getting sober. Yeah. It's massive as well. So there's hope there, but it's just it's really difficult. And the thing is, it's such a shame because when we're in addiction, we're we're assholes. That's the problem. Like it's hard to it looks like willful behavior, doesn't it? I think what I wish people that like, in general, like, and even as far as like the National Health Service, you know, understood the concept of powerlessness, like an alcoholic often looks like they're drinking because they want to drink, but it's not a choice anymore. And I think we cross a line where it's no longer a choice, whether we pick up that drink or not, but we're still working under the illusion, the delusion that it is a choice. And I think that's very, very hard for someone uh, who isn't an alcoholic to understand. I think that's really, really hard because it just looks like bad behavior, incredible selfishness. And it's like, actually, I desperately did not want to be someone who was drinking vodka. Like I didn't go to the Royal Academy of Music and practice all my, all my life to be in a, in a toilet on a Vox, on the Vauxhall roundabout decanting Aldi vodka into a water bottle. That's not who I wanted to be. But I had no other resources. Like, and I have to kind of look at that girl with compassion now. But it's taken me ages. Yeah, you know, it's really. And actually, I thought it was a real cop out when I went into recovery. And people said, "Well, you're powerless over this. You've got a disease." And I'd be like, "What a crock of shit that is! I'm a yeah. bad person. And if I was a better person and a stronger person, I wouldn't have to do this. I'd, I'd be more resourceful. I'd, I'd be stronger." And actually, it wasn't until I relapsed and I understood that, yes, indeed, I was powerless, that I could start getting better. I could, because yeah. as soon as I had this illusion of like control, that like I'd like, and actually, once I surrendered to the fact that there was no control, like I'd crossed the line years ago and I was never going to uncross it, then I could start recovering. But it, it, it like the journey from that, la- from, you know, making that discovery. A lot of people never get there. They never make that bit of the journey where they're like, oh, God, I'm powerless over this and I could do something else instead. You know, because you've got to smash through layers of denial and all sorts and stigma and the whole, it's re- it's a it's a fucker. It really is. Well, Rachel, I don't think you need to play the cello to be able to give me goosebumps because you articulated that so perfectly. Oh, so thank, you. Th- thank you for that because it, it was put so perfectly. Um and there's a lot of us that are really, really, really understand that, um, that, you know, the judgment that we get because we do this, well, don't drink then. And no wonder he died, you yeah. know, that, that kind of statement. And he brought it on himself. Yeah. All, all of it. So thank you for that. And as I always say, this is one for the road. And um, I try and keep them within an hour because people have them on their car uh, at the gym, going for walking the dog and that. But I did want to just talk about who you've played um, with, like London Grammar, right? I, I read that. Now, oh, my God, they are literally one of my favourite bands. And on that, yeah, yeah, I absolutely love London Grammar. And they played a part of my recovery as well because I, I, I listen to music a lot with my headphones on and it stops the noise. It's one of my coping strategies. It's like diverting the overthinking, right? 
And yeah. they've had so many amazing albums, but the Californian Soil one, when they had musicians in, the video was so emotional. And and I'm wondering whether you was one of those people in the video because I wasn't in the video. I was in what did I do on the California? They did like an, a live thing in Ali Pali, where they made Ali Pali like a like a beautiful rainforest, and we played. Yeah, I, I, that's the one I think I'm talking about. Yeah, that was it. That was so brilliant, honestly. I've got such a like a place in my heart for London Grammar because um, I toured with them on a bus when I was pregnant with my son. Wow. And touring on a bus sober is already quite difficult, but they are they are such lovely humans, and they were always really supportive about yeah. me being recovery and getting to meetings and things. And they were just yeah, they're lovely people. But her voice, though, right? Hannah Reed, her voice Anna, is like Anna. angelic, isn't it? It's they're really talented. They're lo- they're lovely. I love and, them. And uh, so there's that. And I mentioned Pink Floyd earlier. So what what are you doing next month? Next month, playing with I don't know if am I allowed, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about oh, it. Oh, maybe not then. <laughs> well, I don't, maybe they started advertising it. I'm not sure. I don't know. There can... may be there may be a little project in the pipeline of doing uh, Dark Side of the Moon with Roger Waters at the Palladium with in, with a very small acoustic setup so i'm gonna do that with that frank. is incredible yeah so that, is that, that will... Franksy boy gonna be yeah. there Franksy boy will be there yeah i'll have to have a word with him <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh it's amazing oh, i'm so so genuinely pleased you've you've managed to sort things out and life looks good for you now even though it has ups and downs it's the reality isn't it yes and I'm so grateful you joined me today because it's been a brilliant interview. You've been so articulate. Uh, I'm really grateful to you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon. And you can also follow me on Instagram at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.